When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Golden, and today we're going to break down the mechanics behind three of the major blockchains. Bitcoin, Ethereum, and Solana. Blockchain is a term you hear a lot, both in this show and in Web3 more generally. But what do they actually mean and how do they actually work? That is the subject we're going to cover today and something I've wanted to do for some time. My guest for this episode is Keone Han. Keone is a math prodigy who spent close to a decade building systems for high-frequency trading. Today, he is a co-founder and CEO of Monad Labs, and is building a blockchain alternative to Ethereum and Solana. He has that rare blend of deep technical knowledge and the ability to communicate clearly, so he's the perfect guest for this episode. Please enjoy my conversation with Keone. Keone, I'm excited to talk to you again, and this time on a recording. This is going to be a master and student type lecture for me. You're extremely smart. You've really helped me understand how blockchains work. And so today, I thought we'd start about some of the mathematical underpinnings. I wanted to begin with, help me understand. You know, I read the Bitcoin white paper, Ethereum white paper, I had a little bit of training in computer science, so I understand relational databases. But I want to try to think of what's the best analogy as we're talking about this, and we're going to go through different blockchains and how they work. What's the framework that you've heard resonate most, probably when you're talking to your non-math friends, but how a blockchain works? I kind of like to think about it in two parts. So maybe let's just talk about Bitcoin first. So I think of Bitcoin as just being like a bunch of kids on a playground and they come up with an imaginary point system. There's no physical points. It's all just in people's heads. And it's just that everyone agrees on the number of points that everyone else has. So maybe to start with, everyone has 100 points. Eric, you have 100 points. I have 100 points. Sally has 100 points, et cetera. And then we could do transactions. I could challenge you, Eric, to like go across the monkey bars. And I would say, like, Eric, if you can go across the monkey bars, I will give you five points. So then you do that. And then I go announce to everyone, all right, now Eric has five of my points. So decrement five points from me and increment five to Eric. And everyone in their heads knows that Eric now is 105 and Keone has 95 and so on. And I think that's a good analogy for Bitcoin. There's no physical points. There's no physical Bitcoins. It's all just due to consensus. Everyone agreeing what the set of balances that each person on the playground has. The kids are keeping track of their own scores. You could potentially introduce a new student to the game. And if the new student shows up, how are they aware of where everyone stands? The simple point system basically needs to have checkpoints of some sort so that a new student who shows up can find out what the current balance is, how many points they have, how many points everyone else has, so that they can operate in this little playground economy. So a simple way of doing that is we could introduce a teacher who's a third party who's listening to all of the point transactions, making note of them on a whiteboard or something. Then the new student could just go ask the teacher what the current balances are and then go from there. But the bad thing about that is that This creates this point of centralization. Like we have to trust the teacher. In the real life, that teacher could be a big bank or government. 
but maybe we don't want to trust that single point. Like they could make a mistake, they could miss something. So the way that we do this is we want to create a decentralized set of authorities who are all checking each other's work. They're all listening to the transmission of points. We will need to create some sort of incentive mechanism to make sure that they're staying honest. So I'll play it back to you. In this example, we're going to have the kids keeping track of their own points. There could be a teacher and that teacher could keep track, but we know teachers have favorites or make mistakes or are too busy and maybe aren't to be trusted. And we want to try a new system. And in this case, we could have volunteers or for example, sake, we'll have parents and you have a group of parents that are also keeping track of the scores. And when that new student arrives, that student could ask randomly, whichever parent is there, hey, what's the current status of the game? That's right. So basically, we could have a bunch of parents that are all listening to this, and then kid could ask one of the parents, and then they could tell what they've seen. But there might be confusion because they could ask a different parent, and they might have a different response. So mm-hmm. we need some way of consolidating that group of parents, all of their work into a single consistent agreement about the view of the point system. The way that we're going to do that is we're going to create checkpoints. We're going to ask parents to create a checkpoint every now and then, say every 10 minutes. Every 10 minutes, someone is going to be responsible for creating a checkpoint of all of the recent things that have happened, as well as the balances of each student at that point. Then the checkpoint is going to reference a previous checkpoint. And lastly, we're going to have all of the parents pool their money together. And the more money that a parent puts in, the higher likelihood that they're going to produce the next checkpoint. When they produce a checkpoint, then we're also going to give them some extra points, which are created out of thin air, in return for the fact that they have done that work. And so it's really a bad idea for a parent to get selected as the next checkpoint producer, but produce an invalid checkpoint because then they'll end up losing all the money that they put in to try to get selected, but they won't get any extra points because other people will not accept that as a valid checkpoint. So I guess here's where I'm confused a bit on how I understand Bitcoin working. I love the analogy and I want to keep it going. So the parents in this case are a mining company, like when you say money, let's turn ASICs into calculators. So every parent has a calculator and the more calculators that they buy, the more chances they have to win. All these little calculators do is keep track of this kid's game. That's all they do. So like one parent has five calculators, the other parent has 12 calculators. The parent that bought 12 calculators has invested more money in trying to win the reward. But if only one parent wins the reward every time, every 10 minutes. Hasn't everybody lost, not just the person who gave the bad answer? Because I thought the risk is that Sally's mom is like, I'm going to give Sally some extra points because I want her to win this game. And that's what we're really worried about is messing up the chain of who has what. And so the consensus comes together and they're like, no, Sally's mom, you're wrong. So like when you said that stake, that cost part, I think I got lost a little bit because I was thinking, well, everyone's running calculators. Everyone's spending energy to try to get the right answer. So everyone loses except the one person that wins. So how do you actually confirm that that person has the right score? Yeah. Just make up some numbers for a second. Say that every calculator costs 10 cents to operate. And then there's 100 calculators in total that are operating at a time, but they're distributed among different parents. Maybe one of the parents is like, I don't know, a crazy high roller. So they have 20 of the 100 calculators. So they have a 20% chance of getting chosen to produce the next checkpoint. And they're spending $2 to do that. In total, people are spending $10 worth of calculator time to try to produce the next checkpoint. And then the new checkpoint gets created. The number of additional points that gets created for the person who won is, let's say, $40 worth of points. We'll talk about what that means exactly in a second, but let's say there's $40 worth of points. So basically what's happening is people are spending $20 worth of calculator time to compete for a bounty that's worth $40. And the person who wins, say that person who had 20% of the calculator power, 
So they spent $2 and they got a $40 bounty. So they're super happy. There are other times where they spent $2 and they get zero. So this is really touching on the idea of expected value, which is that you invest something and then sometimes you win a large amount and then most of the time you lose your investment. It's like buying a lottery ticket. The proposition for these parents, I guess, is that their expected value of doing this action is positive, but most of the time they do end up not getting any reward. And the point is that if you're in a situation where, okay, so this is going to change the analogy very slightly, but hopefully we can still stay on this stack. So if you buy a lottery ticket and then it turns out that you win, but anytime that you win, your roommate steals a lottery ticket from you, then it's very bad for you because it means heads, you don't win anything. And tails, you also don't win anything. And the whole time you're paying for the cost of the lottery ticket. So the same thing is true here. When the parents are putting in the calculator time, and if they win, they only actually win the bounty if they produce a valid summarization. That's really the incentive for keeping them on track. That makes a lot more sense. So the parents are all like, I want to go volunteer and help keep track of the kid's game. The amount of calculators they bring to the game decides how much they're going to spend. And if you keep producing bad results, you're just an idiot who's just spending money for no reason because you're never going to get a positive ROI because the rest of the parents are going to be like, that person, Sally's mother, is a liar. And she's constantly trying to give extra points. So she's never going to win a reward. So far, I'm digging our school kids analogy. I've never heard someone explain it this way, but I'm definitely going to use it with other people. One thing I'm realizing is a little quirky about it is that sometimes parents do actually just volunteer. And so they do give their time for nothing or seemingly nothing just for like altruism. So that's the only thing that makes it awkward about this role being called a parent. That's It fair. should be called like older kids or something. The older yeah. kid who's like getting a little stipend <laughs> to keep track of the elementary school kids' points game. The thing that I like about it is just the notion of trying to keep track of a ledger. When people talk about the immutability, like why don't you trust the teacher? Why don't you trust the bank? Why don't you trust the government? And I think the introduction of the parent part, to me, is a nuanced but interesting part of the analogy because this is how cool Bitcoin is. Even if you had a parent who had a known bias to try to do something, the other mechanism breaks it from happening. That's the part I like about it the most. The notion that the parent might want to abuse the system, that's the part I love so much about your analogy, is that if they did... The other parents would say, no, that's not right. I think that was the part I was trying to dig into a little bit more. The other cool thing is that the way that the disputes about whether Sally's mom produced a valid checkpoint or not, the way that that dispute is adjudicated is actually just that the other parents are kind of voting with their feet. And this is where the chain part comes in blockchain, is that when a new checkpoint is created, it has to reference a previous checkpoint. So the person who's producing the checkpoint after Sally's mom, say it's Eric's mom, that person is basically voting for the notion that Sally's mom's checkpoint is also valid. So if people disagree with the checkpoint that Sally's mom produced, then they just produce a new checkpoint that doesn't reference Sally's mom's checkpoint at all, pretends it doesn't even exist, and just effectively recreates the checkpoint in the proper way, or in Bitcoin terms, remines the block. The notion of truth is really just what is the chain of checkpoints that seems to be the consensus one, because it's the one that people keep building new checkpoints on top of. We're doing the checkpoints. Let's stick with it. I love it. Harry's dad gave a checkpoint, and it's legit, and everyone says, let's go. And then we give Harry a reward. Then Sally's mom who's really biased, lies, but we still give her the reward. 10 minutes later, Eric's mom is like, Sally's mom was lying. I'm going to go back and point to Harry, not Sally, and remind the block. In that moment, how does Sally mom lose the reward she just got? Because it takes 10 more minutes before our next checkpoint. How do we get that money back from Sally? It's really coming from the fact that the points aren't physical. The points are really just amounts, like mappings in people's head. In computer science terms, it's like a dictionary. A dictionary has keys and values. The point system has Eric's name mapped to 100, Keone's name mapped to 100. So the way that the points can be clawed back is essentially, we just 
act as if that checkpoint, which was invalid, never happened. And whoever it was who's producing the new checkpoint, they just rebase their checkpoint off of the previous last valid checkpoint that they saw. So in this new state of the world, there was no situation in which Sally's mom got the reward. Let's just say the rewards were like six points. When Eric's mom calls out Sally and they remine, does Eric's mom get 12 points? No, Eric's mom gets six points. So that block that got remined, it's as if it didn't exist? Correct, yeah. Got it. How often does this happen in Bitcoin? There's a couple of things. One is that people can propose invalid blocks all the time. That is to say, a parent could shout out a checkpoint that is not valid, but everyone else would just ignore that because they would very quickly verify the contents of that checkpoint and then see that it didn't have a valid list of transactions and they would ignore it. Maybe to explain the other thing you're asking about, the 10 minutes that we talked about is not really on a fixed schedule in Bitcoin. It's just probabilistic. The reason that it's probabilistic is because the way that people compete with this calculator power contest is that they're trying to solve a kind of random math problem. And the random math problem says, pick a random number, concatenate that with the information about recent transactions that have happened, and then pass that into a hashing function, and then check to see if the output of that hashing function has some very unlikely property. The only way to solve this problem is just to try a lot of random numbers. The more calculators you have, the more of these repetitions you can do. Therefore, the more likely you are to solve that really hard-to-solve problem. It's so funny. I want to restate something because it was my own ignorance. When I first learned about Bitcoin and people told me that these computers were solving this math problem, I thought naively it was some complex, you need to be a math winner to solve this. But the way I understand it, in the most simple terms, we don't have to get into the hashing and the hex and all that. It's just that imagine people just press a random number generator. And they kept having to press the random number generator until the number was so small, was below a certain number. So it's not really complex math. It's actually very simple and kind of silly in some ways of just like generate a random number over and over and over and over again till it satisfies these properties. I always thought it was like, you get to be a strong mathematician to mine a block of Bitcoin. I didn't realize that part of the essence of the beauty is it's not Like you need a math degree to solve this thing. You brought up a really good point. So it is important to point out that the solving of the quote unquote super hard math problem is completely orthogonal to the problem of running the transactions, applying the different list of transfers that people made to each other. These are completely separable problems. And the many calculator problem, the hashing problem is really just there to help decide which parent gets to actually produce that checkpoint. We've got other chains to get to, but let's just do one more common term, which is this 51% attack. Let's just say there's going to be 10 volunteers. And the way I really want to break the chain and make sure... So Sally's mom is like, I'm going to get five friends to come. So we're going to be six out of the 10 parents. Explain the idea of this 51% attack of someone having control of so many calculators that they could corrupt the chain. The way that we've said that checkpoints are going to get created is it's just a calculator battle. The more calculators you have, the more likely you are to generate that random number that designates that you have the authority to produce the next checkpoint. The friends roll up with a whole bunch of calculators. The main authority that the checkpoint producer has is actually to define which transactions are in that checkpoint and what order the transactions are in that checkpoint. And this is a really important point to note because prior to this, I was being very loose about how I described it. And I didn't say the important thing about transactions, which is that we use some sort of securing mechanism to verify that every announcement from a kid was actually sent by them. So let's just go back a tiny bit and go back to the kids in the playground. One problem that you could imagine is I'm daring Eric to go across the monkey bars, and then I'm announcing that 
we should deduct five points from my account and increment five to Eric's. But what happens if Eric just pretends to be me, he like fakes my voice and then announces to everyone, hi, Keone, authorize everyone to deduct five points from Keone's account and increment to Eric. But it wasn't really me that actually sent that message. So in crypto, pretty much in every blockchain, we utilize asymmetric key cryptography to ensure that all messages are actually sent by the person who has the authority to send those messages. The point is basically that you can verify that a message was actually sent by the person who sent it. Let's assume that we know that the transactions are coming from who we believe they are. If we assume that, then what that actually means is that when a parent produces a checkpoint, they can't authorize any transactions that were not actually authorized. Sally's mom, when she produces a checkpoint, she can't include a random transaction that says, Keone sent Sally all 100 of his points because that would have required me to actually sign that message and I didn't create such a message. So that kind of attack is not possible, even in the case of a malicious Sally's mom. The thing that is possible is imagine that Sally had 10 points in her account and then Sally decided to buy a peanut butter and jelly sandwich from Keone. The way that Sally bought the peanut butter and jelly sandwich from Keone is that Sally sent out a transaction saying, I, Sally, give Keone 9.5 of my points. That transaction gets included in a checkpoint. And then I, Keone, see that transaction included in a checkpoint. So then I give Sally my sandwich and she eats it. Then I guess the bad scenario is if Sally's mom is then in charge of producing the next checkpoint. And when Sally's mom produces the next checkpoint, basically Sally's mom regenerates that same checkpoint. But instead of including that transaction where Sally sends me 9.5 points, instead she includes a different transaction that sends 9.5 points from Sally to Sally's friend, Amy. In that situation, what would happen is there's effectively a rollback of that transaction that I thought happened and that I took action outside of the point system. Like I gave Sally something of real value. She consumed it. Then it turns out that I actually didn't receive the points payment that I thought. And that would be the risk of the double spend that you thought you had the money, but she was actually maliciously able to use it for something else. And then it would be corrupted and people couldn't rely on it. That's right. So just to be clear, Sally did indeed have to have 10 points in her account. It's not like she could fraudulently pay me 100 points that she never had. It's really just a transaction that we thought was included in the official chain of transactions ends up not becoming official. Then the other thing that I forgot to say is that that transaction with Sally's sending me 9.5, that might get included, but at a later point in time, and it'll fail because Sally no longer has enough points in her account to do that. So I think that's a sufficient, nice analogy of how Bitcoin proof of work works. You want to try to explain how Ethereum works now? I think in the past, we were talking about the kids having just all of the points balances strictly in their head. Just to make it feel a little more concrete, I'm going to say that all of the kids, each one has their little whiteboard and they're just keeping track of Eric has 100 points, Keone has 100 points, Sally has 10 points. Etc. They're just keeping track of that, a little dry erase marker or something. And then they're listening to transactions. They're hearing the checkpoints occasionally being produced by the parents. And then because this point system starts to really catch on and the economy is building a little bit, people are starting lemonade stands at the playground or challenging each other, monkey bar challenges a lot. We start to think about what other things we can do with this tracking system. So one thing that happens is Eric draws a drawing and he shows it to everyone. And he says, I want to memorialize this drawing in the point system. We're going to create a new account for this drawing. So everyone is currently keeping track of all the accounts of all the kids. Now we're also going to keep track of that new object on our little whiteboards as well. Not the actual drawing, but like a pointer to the drawing. And Right now, Eric is holding the drawing. And then he says, okay, I'm going to sell this drawing to Keone for two points. So he announces that now the drawing, which used to belong to him, 
used to have a pointer to his account. Now actually is pointing to Keone's account. And everyone hears that and they go update their whiteboards as well. The point here is that in Ethereum, it's not just pure balances of points that are being tracked, but also more complex objects and assets that can also be tracked. Basically, with the Ethereum allowed for smart contracting, which allowed accounts to not just keep track of their own transactions, but to be actual applications that you could call functions to do all sorts of things, whether that's mint an NFT or swap a currency for another currency on something like a Uniswap, or even do a borrow lend where you take some of your tokens and you swap them for a loan against some other tokens. And so basically that your second piece of what blockchain technology got to with the introduction of Ethereum was smart contracting. Do you want to get into staking now? The difference between the proof of work and the proof of stake component of this? The staking, I think, is actually, in a lot of ways, easier to understand than proof of work. Because I think proof of work, you have the confusing nature of probabilistic block times and a bunch of people competing with their calculator time to maybe produce the next block. And the whole idea of truth is just if there's a checkpoint that a lot of other checkpoints since then have built on top of, then you can be pretty sure that that checkpoint is not going to revert. Proof of stake is actually a simpler idea, which is just the parents roll up and they each stake some previously acquired points. So now the parents have points, which is a little amendment to our analogy, but probably hopefully not too bad. But basically, parents stake like 100 points or 200 points or 500 points or whatever. And they stake into a giant pool, I guess you could say. And then we're just going to assign probabilities of producing the next checkpoint based on the proportional amount of each parent's stake. All right. So playing it back, Bitcoin, students on the playground, keeping transactions, really secure system, parents have calculators. My Ethereum summary is we've introduced toys to the playground. They can do other things. They have easels where they can create pictures. They've got little treasure chests where they can put money in and out. And we've shifted from formerly having the calculator system to a proof of stake where now, instead of how many calculators you have, it's how much money you put up to be a judge. The idea being, why would you waste all that money not to make more money? Yeah. When we were talking about the proof of stake model, I think one of the takeaways that we had was that different participants will stake the currency, like the points. And it's kind of a carrot versus stick approach to acting fraudulently. So in proof of work, the mechanism is loss of carrot, meaning if you produce a valid block, then you get a carrot. And because you expended real money to try to get that carrot, in the event that you're given the opportunity to produce a block, if you don't produce a valid block, you miss the carrot. So then you're in expectation, losing value by pursuing the strategy. That's the carrot approach. Proof of stake is actually more like the stick, where you stake money in order to get the right to produce a block. And if you act fraudulently, if you act in a Byzantine fashion as the technical term, then you lose your stake. So it's actually a much bigger penalty than proof of work. In proof of work, it's just like foregone lost reward, which is bad. But if you lose your stake and it was a big stake, that's a massive amount. So the incentive to not act in a Byzantine manner is actually quite strong in proof of stake. So going back to that, just to recap it, in our proof of work, Sally's mom is just wasting time trying to cheat for her daughter. And it just doesn't work, wasting her time. However, when we go to proof of stake in Ethereum, every time Sally's mom tries to cheat, we're going to tax her that stake that she put in to be a volunteer. We're going to be like, you're a liar. You're going to get taxed. That's correct. In a proof of stake system, generally, these are leader-based systems. The leader is the node, like the computer that is responsible for producing the next block. And generally, the way that it works is the leader proposes the block, and then the other nodes in the system that also have stake talk to each other and agree on whether or not that's a valid block. If they agree, then that block gets finalized, and then they move on to the next slot where the next leader is going to produce the next block. If they agree that it's not a valid block, then that block doesn't get accepted, and then 
the subsequent block will be basically re-mining that opportunity. So probably including some of the same transactions that were included in the previous block. So comparing proof of work and proof of stake, in proof of work, you're using compute power electricity to win the reward. And proof of stake, how come it's not just whoever has the largest stake, meaning they put the most money in, gets the most rewards? How do you determine who gets the reward versus the compute version? In proof of stake, it is true that the probability of being selected to build the next block and thereby earn the reward is proportional to the amount that's staked, which really means that even if you're a very small staker, you could still earn rewards proportional to the amount that you put on the table. So it's actually very democratic in that sense. You don't need a huge economy of scale in order to participate as a staker. I think we've used the analogy in a good way to explain Ethereum. Let's do Solana. How is Solana different than Bitcoin and Ethereum trying to keep the same analogy? Solana is a kind of redesign from the ground up of the entire mechanism by which smart contracts are implemented in this environment. So it's using a completely different programming language for how the smart contracts are defined, specifically Rust. Although I guess people can also build smart contracts in other languages like C++. It's flexible, but Solidity in particular is not supported right now. And Solidity is a language that people would write most smart contracts in at this point. Beyond that, Solana has changed the fundamental model of how smart contracts operate to make them stateless. I guess maybe to explain that a little bit better, I first need to explain what state is in a smart contract. With a lot of smart contracts, I guess you could think of them as like a vending machine that has a bunch of inventory inside of it. And you put money in the vending machine and then it spits out a can of Coke or a bag of pretzels. So all of the details of the balances inside of that vending machine, you could think of that as the state of that vending machine. State is really important because it's what allows the smart contract to respond to user requests in an appropriate way. As another example, a smart contract, which would be a bank. So this is a object that you can call deposit and withdraw on. You deposit money and then the bank will lend that money out to someone else, earn interest on it, and then pay you some interest on your deposits. So clearly, that bank would need to have state that's keeping track of how much each user deposited. And then when they come back to withdraw, that way it knows how much to give them when they try to withdraw. So state is very intuitive. It's a very basic thing that would help people implement a lot of different programs. But in Solana, the programs are actually stateless. And all of the state is stored externally in separate accounts that are separate from the smart contract. So if I'm going to say it back to you, if I think about state, is it fair to say that state is the score of the game at any point in time? The score of the small game, the one that's specific to that one smart contract. So in this example, like the treasure chest on the playground, that's the mini bank where you're putting money in or not. How do you know how much anyone is owed or what the loans look like in a stateless blockchain? In a blockchain like Solana, the programs are stateless. And if you want to do something that involves state, it requires initializing separate accounts that store the equivalent of state for that program. So basically, every intersection between a smart contract and a user requires a new account. I guess you could think of the account as Eric's account on Bank of America or like Eric's account on JP Morgan. These would all be separate accounts that are stored on a separate part of the blockchain in a separate storage space. And then when you want to interact with the program, you're required to pass in a reference to those external accounts. So if I compare Ethereum and Solana, when I'm interacting with a bank on Ethereum, when I do that interaction, they see all of Eric, all the NFTs I own, all the DeFi transactions, everything I've ever done. Whereas on Solana, when you interact with a very similar protocol like a bank, it's just looking at 
this is Eric's activity on this application. So that's where the speed comes from. Yeah, thanks for asking about the speed. That brings us back to why Solana is designed this way. Solana has the ability to execute multiple transactions in parallel. And the way that Solana accomplishes this is by having all of the transactions pre-specify all of the dependencies that that transaction is going to depend upon. So the reason for the stateless accounts is when you call a function on a Solana smart contract, you have to pass in a list of different dependencies. And then the runtime can look at that function call, look at all the dependencies, and then tell that another transaction is not going to have any common dependencies, and therefore that it can schedule those in parallel. Is there a trade-off from an ability to hack or cause problems when you're running the dependency style versus everything in serial? I don't know if this is one of those facts or myths. It gets a little bit of the trilemma that Bitcoin is the most secure because it's so simplistic in what it can or can't do. And its consensus mechanism, it's very simplistic, so it's the most secure. Then Ethereum allowed for some more flexibility, not as secure, but a lot more vibrant. You can do a lot more things with it, potentially. And then Solana, that you're kind of giving these trade-offs that now everything's happening in parallel, and maybe there's like a trade-off between security and speed. But I don't know if that's just a commonly held misbelief or an actual technical truth. I definitely agree with what you said about Bitcoin having fewer hacks because you can just do less with it than Ethereum. I think maybe the fair comparison between Bitcoin and Ethereum from a security perspective is, are there ever false transactions? Or like, are there ever double spends on either Bitcoin or Ethereum? Because when the only thing that you can do is simple transfers, the only kind of hacks are like, if there's a false signature that allows someone to sign a message that they didn't actually have the private key for, or people reordering transactions in the double spend, the thing that we were talking about before. And so I think Bitcoin and Ethereum are similar in that respect. They're both quite secure. But then Ethereum, because it has all this extra stuff, and then sometimes the extra stuff involves people writing smart contracts that are not secure, that have some bug in it, that then allows a hacker to go hack that, to subvert the intention of the code to withdraw money for free or something like that. That's really the kind of hacks that we do see. It's a very good clarification that it's not the actual chain or a double spend breaking. It's someone writing a smart contract that has some sort of vulnerability. To go back to our analogy, the game on the playground, people are putting money in, taking money out, and they don't realize that there's a back door because of how the game was constructed and then a hacker siphons off money or something of the smart contract. I guess my question was on the Solana versus Ethereum, where that has this different mechanism where you're picking up the speed because you're paralyzing the dependencies. Another way to say that is you're looking at a bunch of things simultaneously as opposed to look at one, two, three, four. If that pickup and speed exposed any more vulnerabilities in the smart contracts. It actually does not because the truth of the outcome of executing all of the transactions in parallel is always the same as if the transactions had been run one after the other. That's a guarantee. It's not ever causing something different to possibly happen because things are run in parallel. I think when people hear about parallel execution, they think that it means that there might be transactions that are defined to happen at the same time as each other, but that's not really what's actually happening. In Solana, the transactions are all linear. That is to say, If you inspect a block in Solana and you look at all the transactions inside it, there's a defined order, one through a thousand or whatever it is. Transaction two always happens after transaction one from a correctness perspective. But it's just that when they go to run transaction one and transaction two, if they notice that they don't have any common dependencies, then they potentially run them in parallel. That's interesting. I guess what I'll say back to you is if I was going to take money out of one smart contract to go buy an NFT on Solana. And that was one and two. And then you were doing a third transaction. Your transaction and my transaction have nothing to do with one another. But that first one I did where I was taking money out of one thing, like there is a dependency. If I don't do this, I can't do that. So that always has to be done in order. But there are things that are unrelated and therefore you can paralyze those for speed. Yeah, exactly. I think the analogy that I like to think of is 
it's like there's a stack of exams from one to a thousand that need to be graded. And some of the exams were submitted by the same student, maybe part two and part three of their exam. Part three might reference part two. The answer to the question might refer to something that the student wrote earlier. And then you just have a whole bunch of TAs in a room. The teacher comes in with a stack of exams. They say, TAs, go grade this. And then the exams start getting distributed among the TAs. Ultimately, when they're returned by the TAs, they get returned in the same order. And the TAs are smart about realizing that this exam is actually part two for the students. So like, we need to not grade it until after part one is done. That makes a lot more sense to me. I guess this isn't meant to be an insulting question, but why on earth do we need another blockchain? We have all these blockchains that do stuff. I believe that people have made strong arguments for living in a multi-chain world, but I'm always curious when someone pitches a new chain, why we need another chain. At Monad, we're really focused on performance optimization and redesigning a lot of the internals of the Ethereum blockchain that enable much higher performance. That means looking at the way that transactions are executed right now, how the virtual machine is operated. That operation kind of involves a couple of different steps, like reading the bytecode from disk, reading the state associated with that smart contract from disk, actually running the VM, which is stepping through individual opcodes. To give you a quick example of that, the add opcode is a code that pops the top two values off of the stack, adds them together, and then pushes the result back onto the stack. It's sort of like very detailed specification of how the opcode is implemented. We look at that, we look at scheduling of transactions, and we've redesigned from the ground up in order to deliver a system that has much higher performance than other systems that are EVM compatible, and we preserve the EVM compatibility. So it's really just an effort to make EVM a lot more powerful, an effort to make developers able to build much more complex applications while making the cost of those transactions much, much cheaper. What made you want to solve this problem? Were you geeked out about how blockchains work or were you trying to do something on a prior blockchain and you were like, this idea would never work if we didn't solve this foundational problem? I spent a little bit of time in the crypto division of jump trading where we were working on different DeFi applications. And it was super frustrating to see the cost of doing what felt like relatively simple things like building a fully on-chain limit order book. Just for context, Jump is a high-frequency trading firm. So Jump is sending probably in the hundreds of millions of orders per day across many exchanges. The practice of how centralized exchanges work in real life is that for a given market, there could be millions of order updates per day coming from many exchange participants that are adjusting their fair value for a particular asset and then adjusting their quotes up or down in order to stay very close to that fair value so that they have the possibility of providing liquidity and getting a fill. And it's just a very efficient system where for the end user, like a retail trader who's trying to trade AMC or GME or whatever it is, they actually pay very little in execution costs relative to what exists on-chain in crypto right now. The typical cost of execution in the equities market or the futures markets for liquid symbols is single-digit basis points or less. So as basis point being a hundredth of 1%. And then in crypto, it's very common to go make a trade on an AMM and have 2% slippage or 5% slippage. So it's just very inefficient right now in on-chain markets. And that actually stems from the fact that gas is very expensive. And for professional market makers to make markets on-chain, they would need to be updating their prices all the time and paying gas every single time. It doesn't make sense for a professional market maker to be paying like $3 or $5 every time they want to adjust their quote by a tiny bit and do that millions or hundreds of millions of times per day aggregated across all these different markets. So as a result, there's just a lot of inefficiency in the space right now. I find it fascinating because it's one of the areas when people talk about use cases I'm actually most interested in is that using crypto rails for financial markets or how they work 
And in this case, you're used to trading at hundreds of nanoseconds for high frequency trading. Crypto as an emerging asset class is like a dial-up modem. Was that really the instinct that in order to ever get to that future where you could be having these high liquidity flow through markets, you would need to have a chain that was completely reorganized? Yeah, I think that that's a good way of putting it. Like if you live in a world where the only internet is dial-up modem, then you build very simple websites. The websites are almost all text. If you want to imagine a world where there is much richer content and much more plentiful content, it's really hard to imagine that in a world where there's only dial-up internet. This really just requires re-engineering the fundamentals to make transactions much more plentiful and gas much cheaper. And that can enable a lot of innovation. When people talk about block space and the creation of chains in space, is that not necessarily the right way to think about it? Should you really be thinking about it as something like fluid in a pipe where it's not just space, it's the speed which those blocks update? So for example, like right now, if NFT activity is low, if other activity is low, there's block space on other chains, gas prices are lower, but that still couldn't solve some of these problems that you're talking about, if I'm thinking about the right way, because it's not just the amount of absolute block space, it's the absolute block space times the speed with someone could do transactions and the cost to be low enough to be able to do tens of thousands of transactions per second. Yeah, I think the reason why crypto is really useful from a computational perspective is because it's kind of like a single shared sandbox where many different applications and assets can all coexist and they can all compose on top of one another. That's not the only reason why crypto is important. Crypto is also important because it's decentralized money. And that in and of itself is a really important, valuable thing that we should treasure. But I'm just trying to say from a computational perspective, like when we talk about smart contracts, the thing that's exciting is that the smart contracts are interconnected. A new developer can come along and build a new application that's more complex by standing on the shoulders of giants, i.e. by composing different Lego pieces of other DeFi apps that have already been built and reusing existing functionality and composing things together and then building something more complex. And that is inherently because all of the apps live in the same sandbox. There's the shared global state. One thing that can be confusing to people who are learning about crypto initially, they see all these different blockchains and not all of them are full right now. And there's always the potential to create more blockchains just by forking existing code and just creating a new instance. Like you could take the Ethereum code base right now, just fork it and make Ethereum 2, Ethereum 3, Ethereum 4, etc. But the problem is that each one of those blockchains is not very computationally dense because there's only very limited throughput through that blockchain. So that one blockchain on its own will fill up very quickly. What we need is a mega blockchain that can fit a lot of different apps, a lot of different users, a lot of different assets, fit them all into this one sandbox and then allow them to kind of cross compose. That's really where the power comes in. So I see the problem. How does Monad solve it? We solve it by making execution fundamentally much more efficient by enabling parallel execution, as well as certain other innovations that give really efficient state access, really efficient execution of smart contract transactions. Additionally, we have a super efficient consensus mechanism that is able to keep up with that really high execution speed so that this decentralized set of nodes can communicate very efficiently about this high number of transactions that are going to all be executed. Can you compare it to either Ethereum or Solana and tell me how it's technically different to achieve that? It is somewhat a hybrid of Ethereum and Solana in the sense that similar to Solana, it enables parallel execution of transactions. So transactions that are not related to each other can be run in parallel. More generally, we just have intelligent scheduling of transactions, what we call transaction pipelining, to properly sequence transactions very densely so that we can get as much computation out of the computer as possible, which has some similarities to Solana, but we've just spent a lot of time making the scheduling system really efficient. Comparing this to Ethereum, Ethereum, everything is just 
serial transaction execution. So transactions are just executed one after another, which is very inefficient. It's a bit of a tangent, but I'm curious with how this is open source and before you talked about how the code is in a GitHub somewhere and you can fork it and make as much as you want. Is it the wrong analogy to think about just for this example of like Solana and Monad as Coke and Pepsi? But I'm curious about the dynamics of writing code. Like how competitive is it with other chains or you come up with an innovation, but then everyone can see it and be like, that was a really good idea. We should just do the same thing. So I'm curious how chains compete with one another and how there is a competitive advantage, which then presumably it's this network effect that everybody uses it. But how do you come up with some special technology that another chain doesn't adopt? Or maybe that's a good thing for everybody. I think in the long term, it is a good thing for everybody. I think that over a long period of time, ideas will cross-pollinate. It'll result in just improvement to the state of affairs on many blockchains. And a lot of that is also coming from just raising the standards, showing people what's possible. And then it's like nobody had ever run a sub four-minute mile, and then one person did it. And then all of a sudden, lots of people were doing it because they realized, oh, actually, this is possible. I don't know anything about running. That might have been a very uneducated claim that like the mental thing was a big thing. But there's going to be an element of different dev teams seeing what's possible and then upping their game because of that. That's fine. I think you were also kind of asking about the specific technical innovations. Like, is it possible to just go copy something out of one code base and then implement it in another one? I would just say that anything is possible because it's just code, but it's also not necessarily easy because there's a lot of architectural decisions that have gone into building Monad, same as there are a lot that have gone into building Solana or any other blockchain. It's hard to only take some of them without taking the other ones, without having to figure out how that fits in. And there are going to be differences. So I think it's not trivial to just copy paste, let's say that. What's it like to build a chain? So like when you talk about that example of these decisions, I think about a startup and a CTO and a small engineering team making decisions every day over this is what we want to do, an iterative process of development. What's it like to try to build a chain with having feedback from users that are have a variety of different motivations? What is your team like? What is it like basically to run the business every day? We're very data-driven. And then because Monad is EVM compatible, we have the history of Ethereum as our North Star. We can replay the history of Ethereum and measure the performance and look at bottlenecks and figure out the typical kind of access patterns that then motivate the actual design of this new system that we're building. That's kind of cool. So you can take six years of data and then backtest it on your chain to see how fast it could have run and the cost of it? Correct. How do you measure the gains? There are several kinds of tests. One is a pure execution test where without having any consensus element, we just replay transactions. And then there's another kind of test which involves introducing the consensus element, i.e. the distributed systems part where you have hundreds of nodes in different geographies and replay transactions. That kind of test is more complex because you can also have the transactions getting sent to different nodes initially. The way that when a user right now opens their MetaMask and submits a transaction, it typically gets sent to an RPC that is a particular node whether that's Infura endpoints or like Alchemy endpoints or something else. But yeah, there's a variety of different kinds of tests that we can do that isolate specific behaviors or more like an end-to-end test. But overall, it's very illuminating in terms of identifying bottlenecks and motivating the design. Do you have like a metric that it runs like two times faster or something or the same speed at a lower cost? Like what are the metrics that a blockchain team looks at to say, this is good, we're going in the right direction? We basically look at transactions per second, either from a pure execution perspective or transactions per second as a holistic blockchain system. And then there might also be specific metrics that are more bespoke that are measuring performance of storage systems or other things that are kind of like bottlenecks in the system. So what is the rough transactions per second for like Ethereum, Solana, and then the tests that you guys are doing? 
the rough transactions per second for Ethereum is about 10 transactions per second for Solana. The true transactions per second right now, I believe, is between 500 and 1,000. There's kind of an asterisk there because, and this is a point that always gets debated on Twitter, they include the votes of the validators in the transaction count. And then that causes the number to be like 3,000 or 4,000 transactions per second. If you're looking for a debate, you could just post on Twitter, Solana TPS is 3,000, or you can post Solana TPS is 500. And either way, the other side will like come and brigade you. But yeah, from a true TPS transfers and smart contract invocations, it's like 500, 1,000. And then for Monad, it is 10,000. What motivates you to do this? Why do you want to work on this? It's a really interesting problem. It involves a lot of interesting system-level optimizations. For our team, it's just an incredibly fascinating set of technical challenges to solve. We also just think that it's really needed in the space because it's very easy to imagine that if you look at a successful iPhone app, it might have 500,000 daily active users or a million, two million, five million DAUs. Say a successful app with 1 million DAUs with 100 transactions per user per day. Sounds like a lot, but it's actually not crazy because if you imagine those transactions are you interacting with your Tamagotchi or you playing Pokemon cards, collecting cards and playing a game or something, 100 transactions per day, a million DAUs. So that's 100 million transactions per day. 100 million transactions per day is about 1,000 TPS. So that one app on its own would use 1,000 TPS. When you think about creating a chain, I'm curious about the second level of that, bringing developers to your chain and them wanting to develop, or likewise, users using those applications. How do you prove the four-minute mile exists? Do you have to have an application that's running so quickly that people can look at it? Or is it something that you just believe if you set it up there and you create this extremely fast throughput, developers are just going to have to try to build things on top of it? There are definitely things that we can do in the early stages to demonstrate the power of the technology. We will definitely run a testnet with similar geographical distribution and similar sorts of validators. And we can show the power of the technology through some kind of representative applications like a really high-performance Oracle, a really high-performance exchange. But then I think beyond that, of course, the reason that we're all doing this in the crypto industry is to build applications that add real value to normal everyday people. We need to grow the number of crypto users, the number of people that are benefiting from this technology. And that does really require new applications that are thinking about solving problems for like hundreds of millions of people. That's going to require hard work on the part of some of our partners who are like working hard to build new things that add value for real people. And where are you in this timeline? When will the chain exist? When will people use it? Where is that? We're a couple of months from testnet, and then we'll run testnet, we think, for six months, potentially a little bit more. So we're targeting an end-of-year mainnet. Really exciting. Here, this has been super fun. We end these podcasts with the same question every time. What are you most excited to build over the next six months? Which I think you may have just answered. And what are you most excited to build over the next six years? Yeah, in the next six months, we'll kind of be in the middle of testnet just showing people the power of parallel EVM execution and limitless compute. I think that's going to be super exciting to see what people are building on the testnet and the amount of usage, the benefits of that. Six years from now, I like to think about WeChat. And it's not really that popular in the US, but in China or in other countries, it's ubiquitous. WeChat is a super interesting app because it's not just messaging, it's also payments, embedded online stores inside the chat app. You can order food delivery. You can hire a handyman. It's like an entire social network. There's just all this stuff that's all baked into WeChat in the WeChat ecosystem. And I think that crypto has the potential to be even more powerful than that. It kind of has a lot of the same principles going on. The composability of smart contracts means that people can build new functionality that interfaces with existing stuff. I think that six years from now, I'd really like to see the crypto ecosystem be in a state where there's like 
much better UX that's on the level of WeChat, but then also apps that are very tightly integrated within here that are enabling a lot of services and benefits for normal everyday users. At Monad, we're very hopeful that we'll be able to contribute to that evolution as we go from the typical MetaMask isolated web page experience to something that's much more integrated and seamless and valuable. I think you will be. Gary, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Eric. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 